continuing in our series on the Psalms of Ascent. We're actually getting close to the end um, of, of that series. And, um, and so I want to just kind of, I know some of you are like, okay, Rick, we've heard this over and over, but I want to kind of reiterate what these are about. The Psalms of Ascent are a section of the Psalms from 120 through 134 that deal with, that are, or rather are part of the, the group of songs that someone would sing as they left their home and went on their way to Jerusalem for one of the annual feasts, okay? And so these are, uh, how would I explain things? Uh, the, the Psalms are unlike so much that, especially in our tradition, we are down with. What I mean by that is they're emotional, they're experiential, they're not didactic, they're not about like laying out, here's the things that you need to learn and know, they're more about here's our experience and and how to express it. And in our tradition, that's not something we major in. But that's what they are, which means that we need to help uh, kind of we need to allow them to do that work in us, okay? This morning, um, the psalm that we're going to be looking at, 131, gives us a glimpse into what it means to be satisfied. So if, if you'd stand in honor of God's word, that's our habit here. Just three verses. Don't get hopeful, though. I've got plenty to say. This is God's word for us. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I need you to meet with us this morning. Um. Selfishly, I just want to pray for myself in this. Uh, just the the um, extent of this weekend, the the amount of uh, speaking and hosting. Um, but in in our weakness, you're made strong, and so I I delight in that. And I ask that you would show yourself strong and show yourself powerful. Soften our hearts that we would know you, that we would desire you and seek you, that we would find in you our greatest satisfaction. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So I'm um, a little bit of a geek, and by a little bit, I mean of a lot, but um, one of the things that I've loved in the last few years is basically like the first, I've loved almost all of the first three phases of the Marvel movies. I'm not, I'm not so sure about this next phase yet, but the first three phases I really loved, but let me, let me expand my geekdom. Um, because, you know, the, the th- first three phases, you may be familiar, maybe not, that kind of culminated in this guy named Thanos and his famous snap. I actually read the comic books that those came from in the 90s. And so um, I, I'm aware of even the discrepancies that, that happened in there in, in the Infinity Saga. For instance, in the comic, the Infinity Gauntlet wasn't just a tool of genocide. That's what it is in the movies, right? It was actually something you would put on that would make you God. And it didn't kill you when you used it. It just made you God. It gave you omniscience. It gave you omnipresence. It gave you omnipotence. You could do anything you want. Be anywhere you wanted. You could do, you could do anything. You, you were God. And when I was a kid, that sounded really cool. 
Because I wondered what I would do with that kind of power. I mean, does it, doesn't it intrigue you a little bit? Isn't there a part of you that wonders like, man, if I could do that, I could have anything I wanted. I could have everything I wanted. Everything I've ever dreamed. Do you think that would be enough? Do you think it would be enough if you had everything that you've ever dreamed of? I'll admit, I, I, I tend to think so, right? And not just back then. This psalm, though, gives a different picture. And as the third psalm in the cycle of these, and we'll talk about that again in a second, it gives us what a rival looks like. And so what it's going to show us this morning is simply this, that, that you will find satisfaction when you can let God be God. You'll find satisfaction when you let God be God. So let, let's just jump into this. Like, like I said a, a second ago, this is the third psalm in the cycle. So again, I've said it every time, but we need to get it. Context matters in the Bible and not just internal context, not just the context of a passage, but with the Psalms in particular, a lot of them have actually, I don't know if you know this, but the Psalms weren't like written in the order that they're put in the Bible. Okay, there were a bunch of these things kind of hovering out there that people used and that, the, that, the, that God had inspired. And then he worked in the, the life of either one or maybe a group of people to, to um, bring these things together, curing into a collection that we now call the Psalms. And, and as that was done, God's intention of even the curation was set forward in his his um, inspiring of that process so that we have the Psalms of Ascent. And the Psalms of Ascent are given to us placed in groups of three, where the first of those, uh, of those Psalms in that cycle will give you uh, a distress, a point of problem. Here's the problem that's going on. The second will give you how God provides along the way for that problem. And the third, this is what life is like once you arrive. And obviously, for the lives of those who first sung them, arrive in Jerusalem. For us, it's arriving in that place that we were made for in the same way with the presence of the Lord. Okay? And so this is the third psalm which in, in this particular cycle, which means it's about arrival. What is our posture upon our arrival? Well, first, our posture seems to be rejecting hubris. Look down at verse 1, just the first part of it. He says, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. So in, in, in um, Jewish thought, in, in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East, the heart is not, um, for us, is the seat of our emotions, right? When I say I have a broken heart, I mean, it means I feel bad, right? When, I, when you tell that person you love that you have my heart, it means that all of my affection is kind of bound up in you. But in the ancient world, it meant the center of our being. And believe it or not, your emotions are not the center of your being, okay? Newsflash in the postmodern era. It's not, it's not actually the case. So the heart is the center of your being because it is like the fountain from which all of these other things kind of spring up, including your emotions, but also your will and also your intellect. It's kind of the core of where all those things come from and the place upon which they all uh, spring. So to say that our heart is not lifted up is to say the center of who I am, the core of whom I am, of who I am, sorry, is, is not lifted up. And what does that mean? Well, um, often the words lifted up in the Old Testament especially can be a very positive thing, right? God is high and lifted up. Hmm. So what would it mean if, we, if we're saying that my heart is not lifted up? 
If most often the words, when we talk about being lifted up, means God being high and holy and, and, and different and, and kind of up there, what, what would it mean? Well, to be lifted up in this context means to be haughty, to be arrogant. To lift up your heart means to believe you are more than you are. Because God is the one who is lifted up. And so to, to have your heart lifted up means the core of your being somehow believes that I am the one who is to be lifted up. But in this context, no, it's not. I've, my heart is not lifted up. It's the negative of that. And so obviously, we're talking about pride, right? And it gauges the question, who do you think you are? And this has been a problem for a long... I mean, listen, all of us, all of us have this problem. And you're thinking, no, I don't. I'm... I'm I don't have that. No, we do. And it's been that problem since the garden, right? So way back, the beginning of the Bible, God creates everything. He creates everything good. He creates man and woman. It's very good. And he puts them in this garden and he says, you're going to be with me and dwell with me and be in relationship in a, in a dependent relationship with me. And then all of a sudden this other character enters the scene and that character uh, asks a question. Did God say you couldn't eat of any of the trees of the garden? Which he didn't, by the way. And of course, Eve says, no, no, he just said you can't eat of this one tree. And then if you do, as a matter of fact, he said you can't touch it, which he didn't. And if you do that, you're going to die. And, and, and of course, this other voice that we find out who that is a little later says, well, you're not going to die. I mean, he knows. The reason is because he knows that if you eat it, you're going to become like him. Huh. Become like him. That's actually possible? If I eat a fruit? A magic fruit. Woo! Now again, did God say that was what was going to happen? No. But we believed it. We believed that lie. That we not only can achieve that, but because the way in which the lie was put forward was in the mode of suspicion, that's, he's not actually telling you the truth. What he wants is not to keep you from harm. What he wants is to keep you down. So then it didn't just become, I can do that. It became, I must, I have to take care of myself. And so obviously when we talk about lifting our hearts too high, what we're talking about is not just a problem of pride. It's talking also about fear. And here's a newsflash. If you know anyone that's really arrogant, maybe this is you and I'm about to share your dirty little secrets. The most arrogant people are also the most fearful. Because most often, more often than not, and I can say this with some authority, that arrogance is meant to be a shield from your insecurities to keep people away. So pride is the can side of the equation. I can be like God but it's intimately joined to the must side of the equation. I must be like him because I'm, I have to take care of myself. We lift our hearts up, but there's more than that. It's not just an arrogance of place. It's also an arrogance of direction. Look at that next part of verse one. My eyes are not raised too high. Well, this is saying the same thing, but not exactly because you see what, what's hard for us is we see when we lift our eyes, we're like talking about, Lifting our eyes, like looking up. There's a lot of cracks in those tiles, by the way. But like, it's about looking up. It's not, this is not what it means in this context. In the original, in the Hebrew, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about pursuing something that is too high. 
It's a kind of attempt to act beyond your station and ability. And then we have the next part of this, which says, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, when I say that, some of us came from church traditions, if you were part of a church, if not, don't worry about it, you can listen in, but came from church traditions where a verse like this was used to prove you shouldn't think too hard about stuff. Don't occupy yourselves with things too high. And, and that, that, that's not what it, it's not anti-intellectualism. Occupy does not mean think about. It means doing. We use occupy. I'm occupied about stress at work. I'm occupied about this project. That means I'm thinking about it. That's not what this means. This means to actually do something. This is pointing to, to the idea of I'm not seeking to do great wonders. I'm not seeking to be God in the world. You hear me? So it's not just my heart. The core of my being is not lifted up so I believe myself to be God. My eyes aren't lifted up so that I'm seeking to be him. And I'm not occupying myself. I'm not doing things pretending that I am. With me? It's the, uh, you know, it's not just good enough to pursue faithfulness in this little sphere I'm in. I want to change the world. I don't just want to point to a savior. I want to be the savior. And this is different than simple ambition, right? Ambition is, there's nothing wrong with ambition. Like, hey, I want to be successful. I want to go do these things. This is an ambition to be something you're not, to receive glory that you're not due, to get what God alone is meant to get. Which, of course, none of us struggle with. So that's, that's easy, right? So it's rejecting that kind of hubris, but it's also embracing a kind of rest. Look down at verse 2. He says this, uh, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Now look, I have four kids. I don't remember them, any of them being quiet or calm after being weaned. That, that was not my experience. Maybe that was yours. Um, Quiet and calm is a state that happens rarely with young children. And when it does, it normally involves sleep. Uh, it doesn't involve anything else. But uh, weaned is actually a hard translation. Because uh, it is what it means, but it's not really what it means. When we say weaned, what we mean is um, no longer nursing, right? No longer doing that thing, now eating solid foods or whatever. But in this context, it, mean, it doesn't mean no longer, like you're not going to do that ever. It means finished. In other words... I have calmed and quieted my soul like a child who's done eating. Like that baby who's done nursing and is fairly calm unless they have colic or need to poop, right? But most of the time, they've calmed down. Like they're not screaming anymore because they've gotten what they need. They're satiated. And so to say that your soul within is calmed and quieted means that you have and, and, and calmed and quieted to the extent that you were like someone who, like a baby who's gotten everything that in that moment they needed, means that you realize that you are fully satisfied. My heart is not lifted up. I'm not pretending to be something I'm not. I'm not seeking to be someone I'm not. I'm not pursuing to be the God that instead I should find my rest in, but instead I am satisfied. I'm satisfied. I'm finding rest. Instead of a relentless pursuit for more, that point of arrival has to do with being satisfied. And then we wrap up with the seemingly random statement in verse three, right? I'm not this, I've done this, and now hope in the Lord, Israel, from this time forth and forevermore. So what is this imperative? Because that's what it is, right? It's not a like, a, I hope you hope. It's a, 
I want you to hope. It's hope. Like, go do this. What does this imperative have to do with all the rest of this? Well, for the author of this psalm, it appears that it's a kind of closing statement. Like a way to kind of put the ribbon around this thing. Now that he is in this place, this place of rejecting this way of being and instead resting and being satisfied in the Lord, now it is the expression of his heart. And what is that expression? To hope in the Lord. Again, said this before, bears repeating. When we talk about hope in the Bible, what we are not talking about is wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is not wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is living in light of a truth. In light of a reality that may not, in fact, be fully realized at that moment. Okay? The easiest way to explain this, the best way for us to understand this, is what happens between November and January of an election year. Right? Between November and January of an election year, no one cares about the incumbent who lost anymore. Right? There, we call them a lame duck. I don't know if you've ever seen a lame duck try to walk. Like, that's not something that's attractive. They, don't, they no longer matter. All we care about is the reality of the new person, and that new person does not take power until January. But from November to January, we are living in light of the new administration, right? It's as close as we can come. That's what biblical hope is. But that hope is to be in the Lord, Trying to decide whether to bore you with this again. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. It's not just a name. It's a story. The word Lord, all in capital letters, is a story. It's not just a name. It's about a covenant-keeping God. He is Lord. He reveals himself as Lord, or in the, in the, in, in the original it would be Yahweh. He reveals himself as Yahweh only to those that he has made promises to. And those promises are to not let the world be as it is. The promise is to not let our sin rule the day. It's to fix what we broke. So to hope in him is to hope to, to live in light of a covenant-keeping God that will do what he said he will do, which is to make the world right again, to make you and I right again. To do this for this time forth and, to ever, and forevermore, not a one-time thing, but a continual thing. So that the concept of, of being able, being free to bring down your heart, to lower your eyes, and to occupy yourself with the things that we are to do And the satisfaction that comes from that comes from ultimately a willingness to live in light of a story of a God redeeming the world. So, let's bring this home, okay? What I want to do right now is simply look at these areas that the psalmist bring out. And first, I want to examine our hubris. Where is your heart lifted up too high? Where are your eyes looking beyond yourself? What, what are you occupying yourself with something that is too great and marvelous for you? I mean, nowhere, right? No. We don't do that. I mean, who talks like that anyway? Right? My heart is lifted up high today. Please pray for me. Like, I am occupying myself with things too great and marvelous for me. Please pray. Come, hold me accountable. Um, that's not what we do. So let me try it a different way. Heart lifted high. What is it that you believe you don't need or haven't needed God for? That you've got, you've got it handled. 
There's something in your life that you're like, you know what? I need Jesus in these areas. I don't need him in this. Maybe it's your career. You've worked hard. You're a self-made person. You've got this. It's all on you, right? Has nothing to do with where God placed you, the gifts he gave you. It's not, nothing like that. It's all you. You don't need him there. You're, you're good. Maybe it's your marriage. If you're married, like you've got this. We're, I mean, we're in love. We work things out. Would never even think of anything but this. Maybe it's your morality. I would never do those terrible things I see in the culture. Maybe it's your parenting. If your parents, my methods, my methods will create good kids because, well, they're my methods. So where's your heart lifted high? Eyes lifted up. What do you really want that really isn't meant for you? You want to know what I want? I want to be a superhero, but not a savior. Do you know the difference? Because see, like a superhero is someone who gets all the adoration of others. It's the one that gets thought of like, if only Rick were here, he would fix all of this. If only he were here. That car would not fall on my baby. Come and lift it. This mighty strength. He would, he would make things right. But what I don't want is the actual pressure to always be there. Superman can do a lot of stuff. But you know what he can't do? Be everywhere at the same time. Because Superman doesn't do anything in Gotham. Superman doesn't do whatever Green Lantern and Flash do. Right? Superman just takes care of one city. He is not there for everybody. And that sounds great. I can do whatever, but I don't have to have the pressure of always being. I want the glory, but not the cross. The privilege, but not the cost. See, maybe for you, it's not like that. That's just me, I'm sure. Maybe for you, it's more like wanting the love of everyone. Or for everyone to just think you're awesome. Or like, like I said a second ago, like me, you just want people to think you're on a different level. So let me ask you something. I ask a lot, but I, I love asking, how much is enough? How much respect or adoration or applause is going to satisfy you? What happens when your career tanks? Not because of anything you did. I mean, you were self-made, but this just happened. I don't, I don't know what to do. It just tanks. You can't recover. What happens if your kids respond to your awesome methods later in life by telling you how much pressure they always felt to perform for you? How much money they're spending on their counselor because of you. Ha. Save for counseling, not for college. Like, like what, what happens when you get exposed? What happens when you get exposed? See, the problem with lifting up your heart, the problem with raising up your eyes is that you have to fool yourself and others into thinking that the faults you know are there. You know they're there. You have to pretend like they're not there. And you have to fool others into thinking they're not there. And so it becomes this insatiable drive to be something, to be someone, to create something. But it won't work. You can never arrive because what we want isn't something we can do. See, the Bible is clear, friends, that we were made in God's image. We were made to be his image, not his equal. We were made to be a reflection of him, not the source. The problem is that everything we want is meant to come from him, but we want it from anywhere but him. 
And so how do we get that kind of rest that this passage talks about? And so let me, let me suggest this. How do we get that kind of rest? This passage suggests the same thing. You won't find that rest. Listen to me. You're not going to find that rest until you believe that what you are looking for cannot be found in you. See, that's why the psalm ends the way it does. The only way that you're going to find what you're looking for, the only way that you're going to be able to quiet and calm your heart, like a, like a wean shot, like a satisfied baby in the arms of another, is by placing your hope in the Lord who keeps his promises. You want to know why you want to be accepted so much? Because you were made for acceptance, not rejection. That's what you were made for. You want to know why you want to show your awesomeness through your prowess in your career? Because you were made to impact the world by enacting God's loving and powerful rule over it. You were made for that. You want to know why you want people's approval so much, so badly? You weren't made to be condemned. You were made to be approved of. The problem is not the desire. The problem is where we look to get it from, where we look to answer the desire. We're seeking it in all the wrong places. And when we do that, when we seek independence of God, when we seek to get away from him, even when it seems benign, the Bible calls that sin. And so what that does is not only does it lead us to a dead end, we can never get what we want, we can never be satisfied, it leads us into guilt because we betrayed someone. But see, Jesus came back or came to bring us back to what we were made for. He lived perfectly and died sacrificially in our place to deal with our sin so that by faith alone, we can actually be restored to God. And this means that the acceptance that you and I were made for can be ours in Jesus. That the God of the universe will and always will accept us because of his perfect work. The approval we want terribly is ours in Jesus Because God approves of us, not because of what we do, but because of what he has done. The desire to impact the world is ours in Jesus. Because Paul, the apostle Paul in the New Testament says that our work in the Lord is not in vain. In other words, it will have lasting effect, lasting impact. And what does this do? Well, because it's nothing that we've done to get, it allows us to go, ah, I don't have to keep striving You know, uh, in Rocky, Adrian asks Rocky, why, why, do you, why is it so important for you to go the distance? And he says to her, he says, so that I can prove that I'm not a bum. But what if you believed that you weren't a bum? Then the distance is like, you're free to do it, but you're free not to. You're free it allows you to be free to do these things, to allow them to be good instead of ultimate. It allows us to not always try to get something, to prove something, to be something from the things we do, but instead to do what we do out of what we've already received by faith. Don't you see like the rest and the satisfaction that you and I both want can be found 
It can be found when we, through the gospel, can just let God be God instead of us. Do you pray with me? Oh, Lord, that it may be so. Have mercy on me. Just, I, just have mercy on me. That I might be able to allow you to be God. And my friends as well. I know I'm not alone. And so I pray that you would help us to do that. Not by our efforts, not by our just incredible striving, but by trusting you to do that in us so that we can rest. Give us faith and repentance as you always do, as you are pleased to do. We ask for it now. We ask for it in Christ's name. Amen.